1: Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625kHz, that is on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumele Lezondi with Jola Netulo, Onellin Zinti and Your top stories. South Africa commemorates the 58th anniversary of the Sharpeville massacre, also known as Human Rights Day. Namibia celebrates the 28th anniversary since gaining independence. In economics, the European Union approves the proposed blockbuster buyout of U.S. agri-giant Monsanto by German chemical firm Bayer. And in sports, all set for the CAF Champions League draw. Joellen Atulu has your news.
2: Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. The Nigerian government says 76 of the 110 schoolgirls abducted by Boko Haram militants from their high school last month have been released. There have been scenes of jubilation in the northeastern Nigerian town of Dabchi as the girls were returned unharmed. The abduction brought back painful memories of the Chibok kidnapping of about 200 schoolgirls in 2014, the BBC's Miani Jones reports parents have been telling us that they are absolutely elated to have their daughters returned to them early
3: this morning a number of the girls majority of the girls were returned unfortunately they've now found out that five of them may be dead the parents say that the girls are currently getting medical checkups apparently they were all very tired extremely exhausted after traveling for four whole days on the road Parents say, obviously, they're very relieved to get their daughters back with them, but we're unclear as yet how the girls have been released. Parents are telling us that it was Boko Haram insurgents that returned the girls. Others are saying that they may be members of the military. We're still waiting to get confirmation on that.
2: Burundian President Pierre Nkurunziza has declined invitation to attend the African Union extraordinary summit on the African Continental Free Trade Area held in Rwanda's capital Kigali. The president's office says the reasons behind the move is that security for Burundian delegation would not be guaranteed. Burund- Bur- Rwanda, rather, is being accused of hosting the 2015 coup plotters' recruiting, training, and arming refugees to turn them into rebels in a bid to overthrow the current. Burundian government. Assistant spokesperson of Burundi's Burundi President of the Burundi President's Office Alien Diomede
4: elaborates The thing is there is an existing conflict between Burundi and, and Rwanda. dating back uh, um, 2013 there's been an um, involvement and a role being played by Rwanda in uh, arming rebels attacking Burundi and uh, it continues to also uh, play an important role in destabilizing uh, Burundi. So we as a Burundi government, we think the venue of the meeting that the president uh, was invited in is not good for us because number one, Rwanda continues to host people who wanted to overthrow the democratically elected.
2: Officials in the Afghan capital, Kabul, say almost 30 people have died in a suicide bomb attack. Many of the dead had gathered to celebrate the start of Nauru's, the Persian New Year festival. The Islamic State group has claimed responsibility for the attack. The BBC's Jill McGivering
5: has more. The Saki Shrine is a focal point for New Year celebrations, and hundreds of people had gathered in the surrounding streets to sing and dance together. Eyewitnesses told the BBC that the attacker pushed his way into the jubilant crowd to set off his bomb. Many of those killed were teenagers. The shrine is revered by many Afghan communities, but especially by the Shia minority. The Islamic State group described the attack as targeting the Shia community, in the latest in a series of sectarian attacks in recent years.
2: The South African Human Rights Commission says Human Rights Day should never be taken for granted as people sacrifice their lives or their rights to be recognised. The Commission says this day is of immense significance for its works as it is tasked by the Constitution to monitor, promote and protect human rights. Spokesperson Kashwa Brooks.
4: Today the South African Human Rights Commission will be participating in multiple events. A uh, key amongst them is of course a commemoration event in Charlville that people have uh, sacrificed uh, their lives uh, for our freedoms today and that we should never forget that and we should always be appreciative of that and our responsibility is for us to assert our own rights.
2: And finally, North Korea state media has made what happens to be the first acknowledgement of a shift of North Korean policy towards the U.S. since reports of a possible summit emerged. However, the official news agency made no mention of a proposed meeting between the leader Kim Jong-un and U.S. President Donald Trump in May. Trump's announcement earlier this month that he was willing to meet with the, North, with the North's leader after an invitation conveyed by envoys from South Korea has triggered a flurry. Of diplomatic activity, the BBC's Laura Beckham has more. Well, that's your news update for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tula.
1: Thank you very much, Jualane. Now, in 1948, the United Nations established universal human rights on the basis of humanity, freedom, justice and peace in its Universal Declaration of Human Rights, making the provision and protection of human rights important. Ironically, the establishment of basic human rights coincided with the Nationalist Party's takeover of power in South Africa, a period when apartheid laws were institutionalized, laws that took away black people's basic human rights. On 21 March each year, South Africa celebrates Human Rights Day, a day that is historically linked with 21 March 1960 and the events of Sharpeville. On that fateful day, 69 people died and 180 were wounded when police opened fire on a peaceful crowd that had gathered in protest against past laws. The significance of this day is attached to an affirmation made by ordinary South Africans rising in unison to declare their rights. This is what Deputy President of South Africa, David Mabuza, had to say.
6: Uh, paid the ultimate price uh, for simple asking for uh, their rights as, as, as humans in this country. So uh, it's not uh, by mistake that uh, we, 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 we think this uh, commemoration this year as uh, the promotion and and deepening of a human rights culture across society, because that's what we should do. That's what, uh, since 1994, our democracy is about. It's a human rights uh, at the core of the struggle against uh, apartheid.
0: And I mean, this year also being dedicated to Nelson Mandela, the year of Nelson Mandela, promoting and deepening a human rights culture across South Africa and across society. You know, we've seen a very unfortunate incident happening with a young boy losing his life in a pit latrine in this day and age, in 2018. I mean, that again is a senseless loss of life. When it comes to serving the human rights of of South Africans, it it still appears as though we're losing the battle, Minister. How much more needs to be done?
6: I do think that there there would be pitfalls. Uh, And we understood right from the beginning that you need uh, more than uh, public representatives. Uh, You need institutions supporting democracy. The Human Rights Commission, for instance, um, is one such body, and there are many others who have to uh, do these checks and balances in our democracy, Uh, because you go around the world, there hasn't been any smooth democracy, but what becomes important is putting those uh, 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 processes in place and structures in place, which will ensure that uh, if there is a a blind eye, they are always ahead of the curve. And be able to take uh, those who have been given responsibility to lead society to task. So uh, it's it's, uh, a tragedy what you are talking about. Uh, it's, it's, It's a tragedy generally that even in this time and age, you are still talking about people who are discriminating others based on their ethnicity, based on their race, and so on and so forth. But the, the, the battle is on because um, our democracy was it's a nascent democracy but it is resilient. Uh, we will be able to uh, move as we have moved since 1994 because we have moved but not enough to say that we are comfortable that uh, that which those of our Matthias fought and died for is achieved.
0: Minister, I can't but help notice your tie. Um, I, you know, men choose ties for very different reasons, but I have a very sneaking suspicion you chose this tie for a very good reason today. It's a dove carrying a flower, which basically is, is, is all about peace. And
6: it's, and
0: it's something that South Africa seems to be grappling with right now. It's a, we need a peaceful a peaceful feeling among South Africans and something to pull us all together. And I don't know, I, I, it's made my morning seeing this, I have to say. Is that what's going through your heart right now? Well,
6: we, we, we really need peace. We, we need peace, we need, uh, you know, the struggle against uh, colonialism and apartheid was a peaceful one. It was so that uh, at the end of the day, people enjoy their freedom, both as individuals and as a nation. So uh, what is uh, in my mind today is that one day we'll all uh, feel like doves, you know, uh, soaring our nation as a free people, in the true sense of the word, because as long as economic justice is uh, not achieved in our society, we still have a way to cover, I mean some some route to cover.
1: That is South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza. Now, Burundi President Nkurunziza has declined the invitation to attend the African Union Extraordinary Summit on the African Continental Free Trade Area held today in Rwanda. The President's office says the reasons behind the move is that security for Burundian delegation would not be guaranteed. Rwanda has been accused by Burundi of hosting the 2015 coup plotters uh, recruiting training and arming refugees to turn them into rebels in a bid to overthrow the current government. Our correspondent from Puchumbura, Penad Pankukira, spoke to the assistant spokesperson of the president and sent us this report.
7: The African continental free trade area is one of the lead projects of agenda 26 3 aiming at deepening the integration process by allowing africans to trade and move freely across the continent the african heads of states are to meet in kigali for an extraordinary summit on this march 21st 2018 and are expected to sign it despite some presidents to snub it one of them is burundi president Who, in response to the invitation sent to him by the chairman of the african union on February 18, 2018, notified to him that he declined the invitation for security grounds. Alenjomed Zaymana, the assistant spokesman of Burundi President's Office, says Burundi is not in a position of attending any meeting being held in Rwanda following a continuing conflict between the two countries. He accuses Rwanda of continuing to recruit, train and arm refugees on its territory to turn them into rebel fighters to topple the current democratic institutions.
4: The thing is, there is an existing conflict between Burundi and, and Rwanda dating back to uh, um, 2013. There's been um, an involvement and uh, a role being played by Rwanda in uh, arming rebels attacking Burundi and it continues to also uh, play an important role in destabilising uh, Burundi. So, <coughs> we as a Burundi government We think the venue of the meeting that the president was invited in is not good for us because, number one, Rwanda continues to host people who wanted to overthrow the democratically elected government in Burundi. So we believe that if there is a Burundian delegation going into Rwanda, there wouldn't be. Number two, Burundi has uh, always told the international community that Rwanda is recruiting refugees, including children. Train them militarily so that they send them uh, to come and attack Burundi. And uh, independent sources and uh, governments have demonstrated that, and the reports are there for everybody to see. Number three, there are um, a, a number of court cases uh, in which Burundi uh, has uh, asked um, the region, the African community, UN, United Nations, or the International uh, Conference for the Grelic Lakes region, so that they can come and investigate into these things in order for Rwanda to demonstrate that they are guilty or not guilty before we can re-normalize the relationship between the two countries. And um, we've asked the chairperson of uh, the African Union Commission so that we can look into those cases, because they are everybody to see and uh, President Kagame of Rwanda being the chairman of the African Union right now is in a good position to actually surface these cases. But as far as we concern concerned right now, Burundi shouldn't be in a position to attend any meetings being held in Rwanda.
7: Since 2015, relations between Burundi and Rwanda have been spoiled by mutual accusations, each one accusing the other of hosting wrongdoers wanting to destabilize the other. Alain Jomed Nzaimana urges Rwanda to allow the international community to investigate on accusations against the country as did burundi in order to know the truth
4: every time that somebody thinks they are being wronged what we're asking right now is for the region or i mean the international community as a whole should look into the cases that were put forward. Back in uh, uh, towards the end of 2015 and beginning of 2016, they accused Burundi of hosting those committed genocide in, in Rwanda back in 1994. So we told the international community to send in investigators. They came in Burundi, they uh, did their work, because we knew as a country that we had nothing to hide, and the conclusions were that there were no entire in Burundi. And we are actually asking the same thing, but every time we ask for uh, independent investigators to go into Rwanda, they refuse. We want, if Rwanda really wants to everyone, that they are not uh, wrong in any case, they should let investigators or just international community organizations, coming to rwanda so that they can prove that they are really not hosting these people or they are not training these refugees etc etc so whatever is going to happen what we want is that somebody should look into this these cases
7: rwanda is currently hosting more than seventy thousand burundian refugees many of them being clustered in the eastern camp of mahama relations between bujumbura and kigali have been deteriorating since the outbreak of the political turmoil in April 2015. Burundi accuses Rwanda of hosting and helping the masterminds of May 13, 2015 coup attempt, backing rebel groups and recruiting fighters from the thousands of Burundian refugees in Rwanda to ask the current Burundian government. Rwanda has repeatedly denied all those allegations, but refused foreign investigators to come to the country to probe on those claims. A situation putting Rwanda and Burundi into permanent mistrust. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Kira, reporting from Bujumbura. Let us all unite and celebrate together. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress <laughs> for the people of South Africa and the world. This is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit, your help and a party. This
2: year, 2018, marks a hundred years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Rolihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective.
1: Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. It is info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za if you want to send us emails. Now, Namibia is today celebrating its 28th anniversary of independence after a long struggle against the rule by a German first, then the apartheid South African government. Namibia, a large and sparsely populated country of Africa's southwest coast, has enjoyed stability since gaining independence in 1990. It is currently led by President Hage Gengob, who won the 2014 polls by 86%. In the following report, Jane Rabotada reflects on Namibia's road to sovereignty.
8: Namibia was initially a German colony known as the German Southwest Africa from 1884. Colonial rule by the Germans lasted until 1915 during World War I when South Africa took the opportunity to take control of the territory from Germany. Over the decades, South Africa ignored calls by individual countries in the United Nations to free Namibia, only agreeing to give up the country as part of a United States brokered accord. Namibia officially became independent on 21 March 1990. Its first president was Sem Nayoma, who won the electoral process witnessed and observed by representatives from 147 states. Nayoma is the founder of the South West Africa People's Organization, SWAPO, which is Namibia's ruling party up to today. Nayoma made the following promise prior to his victory.
7: SWAPO intends to establish a democratic secular government in
4: Namibia. A government that will serve the interests of all the Namibians, irrespective
7: of colour, race or places of origin.
8: Congratulating Namibia for having successful first-time elections, South Africa's former foreign minister, Pick Porter, expressed that he was hopeful that President Nayoma will further the development of Namibia.
4: Mr Nayoma is very much aware of the need to maintain Namibia's uh, relatively well-developed infrastructures, stable economic situation, and I, I believe, and this is my impression from my talks with him, that he would wish the two countries to cooperate realistically with one another.
8: Namibia had its last elections in 2014, won by the ruling Swapo Party by 86%, making President Hage Gengob the current leader. Since independence in 1990, Namibia has seen steady economic growth, relative political stability and racial peace. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg.
1: Plans to deport thousands of African migrants have been put on hold in Israel. The government wants to send single men to Rwanda or Uganda against their will, but the Supreme Court wants more information from ministers about how safe it will be. There are approximately 38,000 African migrants and asylum seekers in Israel, according to the Interior Ministry. About 72% are Eritrean and 20% are Sudanese. The BBC's Nomia Iqbal reports from South Tel Aviv on how the threat of deportation is affecting people.
5: All the buildings on this street are run down. Broken windows, doors coming off their hinges and graffiti on the walls. Inside one of the flats here is a babysitting service where asylum seekers lead their children while they go off to work. It's illegal. We've been invited inside but have been asked not to record anything. I've just come out of the flat and it's tiny. There were at least 20 children of all ages cooped up inside with just two women who were untrained. One room had rows and rows of cots with babies in them. The windows are open, but the children can't leave. They don't do anything but flick through books, look at the walls, watch television. I've been talking to Sophia, An Israeli who helps here.
8: It won't be exaggeration to say they all go out of their post-traumatic. They suffer from horrible linguistic delays, 100%, all the children. Then second place is physical delays, children that haven't moved a lot in the beginning of their life. Nobody took them to the playground, nobody moved with them, nobody walked with them, like really basic things that they didn't get.
5: These so-called baby garages have been around for many years, but the ongoing threat of deportation means families are desperate to work all day and earn money.
8: They come there early in the morning, they leave their children, they pray all day that their children safe in one piece. Some of the mothers that I know, I have a very big list of mothers in my telephone memory, they ask me, please send me selfie with my baby and send me. I believe that they left with no choice.
5: This is the only choice they have. The area is home mainly to Eritrean and Sudanese people. The plan to deport only the single men amongst them to a third party country has been put on hold Polls suggest that most Israelis support the government policy to deport but it's now been delayed after a petition by more than a hundred asylum seekers was presented to the High Court. The government has until March the 26th to respond. At an Eritrean church service, a cloud still hangs over the congregation, despite the recent suspension.
6: I'm not deported, I want to stay here, why I'm not, uh, why I'm stay here, because the situation in my country is known, you know it, all the world knows about the Eritrea.
5: The UN describes Eritrea as a dictatorship, with a terrible record on human rights. Benin says having arrived in Israel ten years ago, leaving is unthinkable.
6: You know, after 10 years, it comes. If that is at the beginning, maybe it's good and maybe it's uh, fair. But after 10 years, you are staying here. And we all of us are scared about this.
5: He's been told he won't be deported because he has a child, but believes the government will target everyone eventually.
6: No one can choose Rwanda or uh, Uganda. We choose, even if it's hard, we will stay in the detention or what, jail.
5: You would rather stay in jail? Yes,
6: yes, of course.
5: Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been to this area and promised locals who are frustrated that he will remove migrants who he says are not genuine refugees. There is support for his stance here. At the nearby Hatikva market, people want something to be done. So how long have you lived here? All my life. Has, it, has it changed a lot then? Of course. A, a, a lot of people here uh, are strange,
9: like immigrants from Africa. Uh, I don't know
10: exactly
5: to tell you the, my feeling um, about this whole thing, but if it's bothering me, yes. How does it bother you? Then they control the area.
4: They are always in one neighborhood, they are always in the south of Tel Aviv. We are, you know, we are, have a feeling they are uh, taking our places. We are a very small country, we are not a big country. Very difficult for us.
5: Esmiat, who fled Eritrea seven years ago, says she can tell people are getting frustrated.
11: There is racism also uh, we, when you are going around there. Hey, look Africa. People say that here. you. Yeah, that's why there is more than 80 or 90,000 migrant workers in Israel. No one is speaking on them because they are white people, because they have blue eyes, like,
5: why only on Africans? The whole issue has presented a moral dilemma, with some Israelis asking how can a country founded for refugees now turn its back on those in need of help? Rabbi Susan Silverman says her government has got it wrong. This is an anti-Jewish policy because it disregards clear mandates that are religious mandates to take care of the stranger among you. It's also anti-Jewish because we have a history of having needed people to take risks for us, to open their homes to us, to take care of us. And we're we're rejecting that legacy.
1: That report was done by the BBC's Nomiya Iqbal.
12: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja.
6: Namu, Farafina. Farafina.
2: Terra do Soleil.
1: Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de Renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Joanesburg, África do Sul.
12: Sou Mu África. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
1: You still listen to Africa Digest in news headlines now. Here's Joel Anatola.
2: Thank you, Spumalele, making headlines. Nigeria's information ministry says no confrontation of force was used during the release of scores of schoolgirls by Boko Haram. Officials in the Afghan capital, Kabul, say almost 30 people have died in a suicide bomb attack. And finally, North Korea state media has made what appears to be the first acknowledgement of a shift of North Korean policy towards the U.S. since reports of a possible summit emerged. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
1: You're still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zondi. Now, there is increasing evidence that the negative impact of climate change affects African women and girls disproportionately. This is what has come out of the 14th Gender Summit, which took place in Kigali in Rwanda this week. Women in science who attended the meeting say much still needs to be done to advance policies for solutions in science. Dr. Dorothy Nyambi, Executive Vice President at the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, explains
13: is uh, is wrapping up a successful mission in Liberia uh, it's been 13 and a half years and uh, we are quite proud with the success that has been achieved there. and while we as
1: all right so that was not the story on women in science about the conference that took place in a Kikali in Rwanda Pakistani troops, uh, police and other peacekeeping personnel have made a major contribution to the success of UN's long-running mission in Liberia, which will close at the end of March after successfully completing its mandate. That's according to Waldemar Vray, a South African national who serves as a deputy head of United Nations Mission in Liberia, with responsibility for handling political and rule of law issues. He speaks of the significant role Pakistanis have played in making the 2000 and three ceasefire air reality disarming more than a hundred thousand former combatants during the first years of
13: unmil is uh, is wrapping up a successful mission in liberia Uh, it's been 13 and a half years and uh, we are quite proud with the success that has been achieved there and while we as the as the final guard are taking uh, a lot of the credit for the success of the mission I think it's only right that we that we acknowledge the role that all of those before us played in making this a successful mission as well. In this particular case, I think we have to acknowledge the major uh, contribution that has been made by uh, Pakistani peacekeepers. They have been with us uh, from the beginning of the mission, particularly in the in the first difficult days of the of the mission. You know, in the lifespan of this mission, I think uh, more than twenty thousand Pakistani peacekeepers. Both military and police have served in uh, in Liberia since uh, 2003, so we have to acknowledge that they made a significant contribution to the peace process in uh, in Liberia. Not only that, I uh, also want to acknowledge that uh, the force commanders who served in Liberia were from uh, Pakistan. A number of them, and we have to acknowledge the good leadership that has been. Uh, 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 displayed by the Pakistani generals over, over this period of time. So, you know, at, at uh, for a long period of time, at least up to 3,000 uh, uh, Pakistani troops were serving in Liberia.
14: And again, one of the, the last um, contingents, military police, that will be leaving UNMIL will be the Pakistani uh, hospital unit, which has been there for quite some time. Can you please tell me uh, about their work?
13: Indeed. You know, uh, we had peacekeepers on the ground from Pakistan uh, from the beginning, and we have them right up to the end in the form of the Pakistani military hospital that is still with us uh, on the ground, and they will be the last military unit leaving us in, uh, in Liberia. So uh, they've been providing a very professional service to us, uh, expert doctors on the ground, very good uh, equipment that uh, Pakistan has made available to us. They helped us deal with uh, a lot of tropical diseases, particularly malaria, and spare a thought for uh, their contribution during the dreadful period of Ebola as well. They uh, they supported mission staff, but they also made a significant contribution to Liberians and uh, uh, played their part in overcoming uh, this catastrophe that was brought about by Ebola. So certainly they have uh, they have played a. a a critical role in uh, success of the mission in Liberia.
14: Yes, I find it interesting that the Pakistani Medical Unit also paid visits to um, local prisons. Is this a, a normal activity of peacekeeping
13: missions? No, it's not a normal activity. Uh, they've been involved in reaching out to prisons, they've been reaching out to local communities, particularly in the case of children and schools. and. Uh, uh, try to do in that small way contribute to the well-being of Liberians in general. This is uh, way beyond the call of duty. So uh, we have to acknowledge that Pakistan, through their uh, their medical contingent, also reached out as a member state to Liberia and, uh, uh, in helping the Liberian people with the issues that they experience.
1: That is uh, Valdemar Frey, a South African national who serves as a, a deputy head of United Nations Mission in Liberia. Talking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. There is increasing evidence that the negative impacts of climate change affect African women and girls disproportionately. This is what has come out of the 14th Gender Summit, which took place in Kigali in Rwanda this week. Women in science who attended the meeting say much still needs to be done to advance policies for solutions in science. Dr. Dorothy Nyambi, Executive Vice President at the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, explains. It's a
15: summit about science and research, you know, that affects women. So it's science being done by women, but in general also science and issues that affect women. And these issues come from not just the research then, but we're looking at the entire pipeline from early childhood through to primary, secondary, to tertiary, and, you know, when women and men then will become researchers to start addressing the issues that are pertinent, you know, to women you know, uh, within this research space and making sure that, you know, women have the opportunities to excel, you know, and grow as researchers and academics, no matter what we want to do in terms of addressing gender and climate kind of change that's happening on the continent and globally, no one person, no one organization, no one person can do it alone. So partnerships are extremely, extremely important. So I certainly stepped out before the conversation that it is an issue about collaboration, coordination for improved results and synergies. It's about uh, partnerships so we can avoid duplication. And it is about partnerships so we can really be more efficient, again, in terms of what we do and how we do it to address this global emergency of climate change.
11: Are there young scientists, young female scientists uh, that are participating at the, at the summit? Yes, there are many
15: young female scientists that are participating. We actually have a group called the Rwanda Association for Women in Science and Engineering, Rawise, and they are going to be launching the Rwanda chapter of the OWSD, Organization for Women in Science and Development, and pretty much they're, very, they're young scientists, you know, uh, who've come together, young female scientists, and we're very deliberate in terms of, uh, the young scientists that we brought from across the continent, outside the continent, from Ethiopia, Senegal, Mali, that absolutely their voices are on the table and they're part of this.
11: And how important is it uh, for us to discuss or have a conversation about this issue of climate change from a gender lens uh, kind of perspective? How does it change uh, the entire conversation and how effective does it then become?
15: Okay. I think if you look at climate change, you've got to look at there's climate change mitigation, there's adaptation, and there's resilience. And each of those elements, you need to apply a gender lens. When we look at mitigation, what are the things that we need to do, and how would it affect women, how should women get involved? And we are looking at women as both participants and enablers at every single step. And if we don't do it in a very deliberate and intentional manner, and we continue to do it opportunistically or as a sidekick, we will never be able to adequately address, as I said, the issues of mitigation, adaptation, and resilience. You know, uh, the statistics definitely tell us that when it comes to climate change effects, they are disproportionately affecting women more than they affect men. So I think uh, making sure that proactively for mitigation, adaptation and resilience, we are applying this gender line. I think it's extremely key for sustainability and for the long term progress in terms of how globally this issue is addressed.
11: One of the topics again that are on the agenda at the summit is that of strengthening cooperation uh, between key actors in and outside of science landscapes in Africa. In which ways can we strengthen uh, this relation between the different kinds of actors? <laughs>
15: You know, I I look at the broad strokes. There's there's usually government, you know, that has to mandate the well-being and the policy and everything. There are the academic institutions. Then we have the civil society and the NGOs. So that is at the country level. At the continental level, we have the multilateral institutions. That is the African Union. Whether it is the um, African Development Bank, the Regional Organizations, SADC, ECOWAS, you know, SEMAC, but I think it is about all of these three coming together, and actually, how do we go from policy to action? Through action, we get results that apply to feedback back into policy and come back for take for us to take action.
1: Dr. Dorothy Nyambi is Executive Vice President at the African Institute for Mathematical Sciences, talking to Kumoto Mopulane. The global mobile giant operator Vodacom has launched the Jobs Finder portal aimed at readying young people for tomorrow's jobs through its youth digital initiative, The Next Level. The tool is a zero-rated for all mobile networks users, focusing on young people between the ages of 16 and 35 as a key targets the portal has an ambitious plan to help 600 youth find work and gain skills in the digital economy more from chief human resources officer at vodacom matimba mbongela it's actually a url
12: link that gives you an opportunity to engage uh, in terms of uh, the digital um, careers. the fundamental is we didn't want to be caught in the past and we actually, it's about creating opportunities for the future. Um, and in truth is that what we do know is that um, there's exponential growth of digital careers worldwide. Talk of a data scientist, talk of web developer. And our focus is how do we enable the youth to participate meaningfully in the jobs of the future, which are scaling up very fast. I can tell you now, I mean, for instance, someone was working master. I'm looking for an agile coach, as an example, in the business. And these jobs, I've been in human resource for a number of years, um, probably 20 plus, and it's quite interesting how much things are changing, especially in the past 12 months, in terms of the demand of jobs for the future that are not five years away, but they're alive now. So, yes, you are right that um, they, then there are not enough jobs going out there, but the fundamental about this is how do you create and scale up opportunities for the youth mm-hmm. to build the necessary skills for the digital uh, economy. Mm-hmm. And this goes beyond. It's industry agnostic. We're not doing it for ourselves, mm-hmm. we're doing it for the world, so to say, mm-hmm. uh, and make sure that youth have got the right skills. The first of its kind has never been done at this scale, mm-hmm. in the manner that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: And how far
12: is it a continental, city? Starting? All you need is literally a speech mark, customer, you're a Vodacom mm-hmm. customer, and uh, you register uh, in the platform and then you engage. So pretty much it is always exclusive to Vodacom. Um, so talking about continental, about reach. So as of today, anywhere in South Africa, you're able to engage in it pretty much. And that's why we're well, having this session with the media and all that. In terms of across the, the continent, in the next few weeks, few weeks, we're doing the same in other markets. So this is actually done at this point in time. It's being launched in Vodafone stroke Vodacom markets across 18 countries as we speak today.
2: And then in terms of the contributors in this platform, have you engaged?
12: Yes, yes. Are they they excited about this? Yes, they want to engage and um, they actually, because young people by nature are curious, right? Mm. They want to but don't know what they don't know Mm. and hence the need to actually educate them and give the assessment. So the partners, hence we mentioned them, um, EdX, Coursera, and these are basically very good learning platforms that are recognized worldwide, and hence I was saying earlier that a web developer that has been trained in Kunu or in Bushback Ridge, similar to the one who's been trained in Ireland or wherever, would have done a web developer program from this platform. At the end of it, they have the same level of capabilities. So across and we're actually very proud because uh, the partners have developed these very thought-leading learning providers.
2: And obviously you did a market analysis and projections, how many jobs are you expecting from that?
12: That's a difficult one because it's not only about ICT because you can only, that's where the government comes into play and all that, you know, because we only know what you know from an ICT perspective. But in truth, what we do know is
1: that the digital economy is exploding as you speak. And that is Matimba Mbongela, Chief Human Resources at the Global Mobile Network Operator Vodacom, talking to Tuto Ngobeni. It is now time for your economics. Here's on LNT.
9: Thank you, Spu. More than 40 African heads of state have signed an agreement in the Rwandan capital Kigali for the establishment of a free trade agreement that will create the world's largest market. The African continental free trade area will bring together all the 55 member countries of the African Union to trade tariff-free. Nigeria will not be among countries signing the agreement after withdrawing from the process. Sarah Kimani has more.
11: The leaders who included South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa signed the agreement establishing the Free Trade Area, the Protocol on the Free Movement of Persons, as well as the Kigali Declaration for the launch of the African continent of Free Trade Area. The signing has been described as historic and a new dawn for Africa. It comes 55 years since the formation of the Organization of Africa, Unity, and 16 years since the formation of the African Union. Leaders at the summit say this brings the continent closer to the dream of integrating the continent. The agreement will create a market of 1 billion people with a combined GDP of $2.5 trillion.
9: Meanwhile, the African Union Commissioner for Trade and Industry, Albert Muchanga, says although some countries have reservations in signing the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, another summit will be held in Mauritania in July, where those countries can make their choice. Leaders from African countries signed the deal in Rwanda, an agreement which will create one of the world's biggest trade bloc. South Africa's President Cyril Maposa says the agreement will present major trade and investment opportunities for the country. Nigeria has pulled out of the deal with unions saying it could lead to job losses. The BBC's Matt Davis. The Africa
12: Continental Free Trade Area Agreement is being greeted with much fanfare in Kigali. There are promises of increased trade within Africa, thousands of new jobs, and even one day a single currency. Some observers are skeptical that trade barriers between Africa's more than 50 states can effectively be lowered anytime soon, and they point to the current relatively low level of trade between the countries as an impediment. Nonetheless, if the goals of the Free Trade Area can be realized, it'll be the the first step in an economic integration in Africa, which could potentially improve the lives of millions.
9: U.S. President Donald Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum risk escalating into a threat to the international trading system. German Council of Economic Experts say an escalation of the trade conflict would damage international value chains and, in the medium term, threaten the international rules-based trading system. Trump has ordered border taxes of 25% of steel imports and 10% on aluminum, provoking promises of retaliation from partners like the European Union which Trump in turn vowed to meet with further levers on his own. South Africa is the only African country whose economic growth is slower. This is according to the coordinators of the Africa Center for Development at the University of Stellenbosch's University Business School, rather, Dr. Sola Odwola. He was addressing the Parliamentarian Association of Human Rights, which gathered in Cape Town lastly, an Egyptian court has ordered the suspension of licenses for ride-hailing taxi companies, Uber and Karim. This after taxi drivers filed a lawsuit seeking to shut down operations of the two firms in Egypt. The case against the two companies argued that the ride-hailing services were illegally using private cars as taxis. The decision is effectively immediately, but it can be appealed within 60 days. And looking at your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at $12.02 to the South African rents at $9.46 and at $9.48 Zambian kwacha. It is also trading at $0.71 cents British pound and at $0.86 cents to the euro. Looking at your commodities, gold is trading at $1,313 and platinum at $981 per ounce. The price of crude oil is quoted at $67.25 a barrel. Channel Africa News, Zime, Onilin Zinzi.
1: Thank you, Anela. It is now time for your sports news. Here's Mosibudi Makura.
3: Good evening sports fans and starting off with football news. Mamlodi Sundowns head coach Pizomo Samani would like to avoid T.P. Mazembe in the CAF Champions League draw that is set to take place later tonight at 7pm Central African time. Now Sundowns are not seeded and will be in part two alongside Zambia's Zesco United, Tunisia's Esperance, as well as Algeria's Satif. Mazembe are seeded in pool one alongside uh, Egypt's Al-Ali, Tunisia's Itoli du Sahail as well as defending champions weighted Casablanca of Morocco
14: you know so let's avoid mazembe i don't want mazembe in my group we have two big giants in there and you know anything can happen and you have problems so so mazembe can go with esperanza <laughs> or alahli you must go with esperanza alahli We must go there we must go with Vidat that must move away from us
3: While the 2016 champions made history becoming the first South African team to reach the group stages for a third time in a row last year they bowed out in the quarter-final stages to wait at Casablanca Musimane says it is important
14: for the team to do well on the continent It's difficult because we also started with the Champions League and Mazembe clapped us you remember Mm -hmm. and we couldn't go to the group and we tried again you know, first has been trying second years, they can't go to the group it's a mentality you see the game today Not beautiful you do what you have to do to score and win okay it's not good for the champions league teams like this uh, because now they have an extra round they have to play another game one more game than us and it's difficult but i think um i see chiefs coming next year my opinion i think others also will come next year in, in that space and uh, it's good let's all go and uh, represent south africa well and let's get stressed we've got four positions We should go to, Supersport did very well to take us to the final.
3: The third and final Liquid um, Telecom Athletics Grand Prix meeting will take place at the Dal Josafat Stadium in Paul in the Western Cape on Thursday. And all the athletes competing are hoping to end the three meet series on a high. The meet will start earlier than originally anticipated and will get underway at 1745 Central African Time. And organizers are hoping that the good attendances they have seen at uh, Remsach Stadium as well as the Tuck Stadium will continue in Paul. South African long-distance runner Dominic Scott says the series has been amazing.
14: Yeah, it's awesome. Um, You know, I think even this, the Grand Prix series is even getting recognized. Internationally, and I think that's amazing. That's exactly what we want. South Africa is an amazing place to compete. Um, you know, I specifically like Cape Town, I unbiasedly like Cape Town. The weather is always perfect. Um, you know, it's not at altitude. Um, I think that the athletes get to travel to a part of the world that they've never been to before, um, and and yeah, and the people, the great, the food's great. So I think if we can get more and more international athletes noticing that we have. International-calibre events in South Africa. I think that will only help cultivate athletics in South Africa.
3: One of the international competitors who will be in action is Kenyan javelin thrower Julius Yego, the Olympic silver medalist in Rio, having trained in South Africa many times in the past. Yego is excited to be back in South Africa.
12: Uh, thank you. Yes, of course. You know, we've been uh, we used to competing in other continents, uh, more specifically Europe, America, and Asia. But uh, yes, this is uh, my first time competing, uh, you know, different from like championships, competing in Africa, especially in South Africa. I've been here having training camp in Porch for two years and, you know, I like the place, but I want now to compete here. You know, it's it's a nice thing, it's a good thing for our continent. You know, our continent has best talents in the world, but uh, we hardly have competitions like this, but... I think for Athletic South Africa for planning such a big event like this.
3: Well, the Zai Sports News at the hour back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African Time.
1: This is Africa Digest. Yeah, a of stories. South Africa commemorates the 58th anniversary of the Shafil Massacre, also known as Human Rights Day. Namibia celebrates the 28th anniversary since gaining independence. And that wraps up Africa Digest. For today, for myself, Spumane the producer Luanda Maome. Cynical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, you're on plus, plus You can also tweet us on channelafrica1. Until next time, goodbye.